Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Nick Earls and Eric DiNicola. They are real estate investors who purchase and syndicate large multifamily properties in the Southeast, while also developing luxury multifamily condominiums in the Boston market. So thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks for having us, Charles. Thanks a lot. So it's um it's usually we'll have guys on the show that um, have to, you know obviously everybody has a different background but it's interesting that we'll we'll drill down into your development and also syndication because it's usually um in your you're in two different markets right so we'll get into more of that but before uh, give us a little background on both you guys personally and professionally prior to getting involved in your development and syndication businesses. Yeah, so Eric and I have actually known each other almost 20 years now, uh, met each other when we were in high school, did a lot of team sports, you know, football, we we're on the powerlifting team, played a lot of competitive video games when we were kids. So good teamwork between the two of us kind of had that rebellious streak, didn't want to work for someone else, wanted to kind of carve our own destiny. We knew that from a young age, but we didn't really know just kind of a vague idea. Hey, maybe we start a company someday. Um, went our separate ways for a few years, went to different colleges. I got my real estate license and I kind of saw that mm -hmm. as maybe this is the opportunity. Um, I was selling smaller apartment buildings for a couple of years in Massachusetts mm -hmm. and Connecticut. And um, I saw the way an investor looks at real estate. I actually come from a construction background. Um, my, my father's a contractor, my brother's a carpenter. Um, but I don't really like construction. I don't like the nuts and bolts of it. I don't really have, you know, I don't have the skills for it either. So I always thought I wouldn't be involved in real estate, but I, I saw the investing side of it as, as really actually quite interesting because it gives us exactly what Eric and I have always kind of wanted is financial freedom and, and basically security is the way we define it is being able to have passive income, have assets that are ideally increasing in value, but most importantly, providing you regular income. Mm. So we had this idea, let's, let's buy a rental property. And um, we were saving up for a couple of years. And during that time, while we were saving up money to buy our first rental property, I actually noticed that the condominium market in Boston, where I live, is very, very strong. Um, you have Basically, it's either the number one or the number two, depending on who you're, what list you're looking at. But it's the number one or the number two life sciences city in the country. Hmm. The other one in contention, San Francisco. Um, and you have a lot of biotech firms. You've got the vaccine producer Moderna's right in Cambridge. You've got a lot of really highly educated, hmm. well-paid um, employees moving into the city from all over the world, all across mm -hmm. the country, they're moving here, but they're moving from other countries as well. And that has caused the population to really skyrocket in Boston. Um, we already surpassed our projections for 2030 population a couple of years ago. Um, so it, it's been growing faster than was expected. And the people who are moving to the city are high income people. Mm -hmm. So what this does is it makes the rental 
the luxury rental space is very strong in Boston, but additionally, there's a demand for people who want to be homeowners. They want to own condos. They don't want to own a single family with an hour commute. They want to live right in the city. They want to have access to public transportation. So in 2015, we purchased a, a two-family, which was in a three-family zone, and you could convert it into three condominiums, which we sold. And that's been one of our main focuses of our business ever since. We're doing a couple different things now, but condominium development has been our bread and butter since 2015. Awesome. Yeah. Very highly educated. I think it's like you're like within a mile of certain parts of Boston, there's like 80 institutions of higher education. So I don't know where else in the United States and or the world you have that. Absolutely. That's right. So Eric, what's your background prior to getting involved? Um, well, I mean, as Nick said, you know, we've been friends since we were in high school. Um, and we always had this idea, you know, and our personalities were similar, you know, back then we were always, you know, kind of pissed off and going to school and, you know, trying to not have to wake up at 6am and, and do all but we we definitely had a strong bond at that point. And we knew, okay, this is what we want to do. And, and Nick sort of gave you an idea of kind of that first project. Um, coincidentally, you know, there was uh, all these institutions you talk about in Boston, and I ended up going to college in New Jersey for some reason, um, even though, even though what you just said is very true. And, uh, so anyway, it was, it was several years after that, you know, I was working in, uh, public equity and then private equity in New York city. And I always joke, it's like the first minute I sat down on my first job out of college, I knew there's no way I can do this. The like nine Oh one on the clock. I said, this is not happening. So anyway, um, Nick had this idea. We saved up for a while. Uh, we got into that property back up here in East Boston. I had to move back up here, um, which ended up being great. Um, and so, you know, we've been at it with our company now for uh, a little over six years, uh, 13 projects we've done. We have several right now in the pipeline. So we, we sort of started off with that condo thing. Um, you know, I had a finance background. So Nick brought his real estate background. We kind of morphed these two things together to the point where now we're both just very fluent and everything. There's really no division of, uh, skill sets. Um, we definitely both have certain strengths and weaknesses. Um, but we really complement each other very well, work together very well. And, uh, it's not even really like a yin and a yang thing. It's very, you know, together combined, you know, we've brought in other people, another friend of ours, Kyle, we brought in, um, to help grow the business. He works with a lot of the investors and helping find deals. Um, but we got to the point where that, that first deal kind of propelled us, uh, in East Boston, it was a buy right deal. So we didn't actually need to get any zoning approvals, mm -hmm. um, no variances to do the third unit because it was in a three family zone, as Nick already mentioned. So that was kind of a opening thing. We said, okay, this really works. What you found here, man, this, this works, you know, this is something we can continue to do. This is a model we can set up and sort of scale up. That was two to three units. Then, you know, our next one um, was a seven unit and simultaneously a, a two unit. So, you know, you think, okay, a two unit may be smaller again, but that those are very high priced units in a sub market right outside Boston and other city. Um, so that gave us the ability to do two projects at once. And then from there, kind of, we just, we hit the ground running um, and really just used all our skills, our background and, and said, okay, we have a new focus here. We have a real good idea of how to build this model out. Um, and we stuck with it. 
Interesting. So let's talk about what you guys are doing now with your current investment strategy. Um, Well, we can start off with your criteria, what you guys are working on with syndications and how you got involved in syndications. And then we can kind of circle back to how you manage that and how you kind of uh, put both firms together so that you have your development arm uh, where I guess where you guys are living in the Northeast and then also where you're also investing, um, I think, throughout the Sun Belt. So give us a little background on how you guys got involved in syndications. Yeah, so it was kind of a natural evolution for us. We started off with all our own capital into Mm -hmm. our development projects. And there's a lot of, you know, people who live up here, they understand the real estate market's really hot. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. of people who are interested in investing. Most of them are local. There are people from out of the state too. I think people from out of this region, um, everyone's hot on the Southeast. We were too, and I can get into that in a little bit, but Um, This is actually a very strong real estate market that's a little overlooked, I think, because Mm -hmm. of some of the unique characteristics of it being high income people and condominiums and luxury rentals. It's a little different from what people are used to, but we built a a pretty strong investor base of people that live around here and want to get in on this kind of strong market. Um, And they're investing in our condo projects. So it was kind of, it made sense for us we were build, building up a rental portfolio just with our own profit we were making from jobs. But obviously that's slow going. It's easier if you have investors involved. So we thought, why don't we get our investors involved with purchasing longer term assets um, or apartments or, or things like that? So that, that was kind of an easy evolution for us. But when we get to the Southeast topic, I, I actually we put a pause on the the looking in the Southeast because we saw some data that I don't know. It's a little troubling to me anyways. It it's the demographic data down there is extremely strong. Don't get me wrong. The population growth, the income growth, projected growth in the future. They're all great. Um, but the cap rate compression has gotten a little out yeah. of control um, in my opinion. So the cap rate compression, according to one study I saw, the Southeast as an overall region has now compressed below the Northeast, which to me doesn't make sense because Mm -hmm. the income levels of people living in the Northeast is still much higher. So I don't think that that's, there's some sort of speculation going on there. Um, And I don't know if that's a bubble or what it is. I might be wrong, but it just seemed, it was thrown up a few red flags for us. And what we decided to do is keep this mentality of getting, you know, into apartment buildings rather than just condominiums, Mm -hmm. but we're doing it in our backyard here. Um, We're using the same sort of mentality that most people are using. We're looking for value add deals and we're looking for places with really strong demographic uh, data. We want to see strong population growth. We want to see income growth. We want to see crime rates going down and you can find those in satellite cities outside Mm -hmm. of, you know, we're in Boston, but if we look at some of the smaller cities in Massachusetts, those are extremely affordable alternatives to living in this. Like I was describing, all these high-income workers flooding into Boston, what happens to people who are already living here or just the regular people who are trying to move here? They have to live in these surrounding cities. They're more affordable, and that's what's happening all across the country. People are chasing affordability. So we're, we're pursuing that apartment strategy right in our backyard, And we're adding a little bit of extra value with our development knowledge. What we're focusing on right now are office to apartment conversions, Mm. because there's a lot of 
underoccupied, underutilized office buildings um, that would be better served as apartment buildings. Interesting. Uh, I, I didn't think about it initially, but that's great if um, when you guys were doing both different models of the you know syndication and multifamily out of state and also Del Fellman, you can utilize your same investor base. And now I just, as you said that, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Because usually I found it's easier with passive investors to be investing initially in something that's close to where they live or something where they're familiar with, which is usually similar. Um, and, and then, you know, bring in the projects that might be farther from home that you're also working on. So um, that's very interesting. Um, when you're talking about, I think, you know, people coming down to the Sunbelt and area like that to invest. And like you said, there's a lot of cap rate compression and um, but it still doesn't have the income that you'd have in parts of new England. Um, where do you be? Is your strategy to develop them, rent them and or develop them and sell them? Because I think it's a completely different uh, business plan uh, because myself being a landlord for 15 plus years in Connecticut, very tenant-friendly state, um, that's different than selling because you avoid a lot of issues after going through the red tape initially um, when you sell it. And just let me know what you, your thoughts are on that and how that works into your, your strategy. Sure. Um, well, I, I'd say, you know, we're very opportunistic guys. Our, our company, that's kind of our, our approach at Winter Spring Capital is where is the opportunity? If we have some sort of knowledge in it or we see someone else kind of a, a peer of ours, if you will, doing something, uh, we think we can do it. Um, and that doesn't mean we know what we're doing. We'll bring in, you know, experts, <laughs> yeah. consultants. We'll talk with all the right people, try to learn as much as we can. Um, so there's really no opportunity in the realm of real estate that we won't at least consider. And it's really, okay, where's the market going? Where's the opportunity here? As the red tape in Boston, for example, and the condo market continues to, you know, wrap tighter or thicker, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, we're, you know, trying to pursue some of these other opportunities. So to answer your question, we originally, you know, we'd build and just sell condos. So we didn't have any assets to hold on to. Then we started to see, okay, to, to go up to some of these bigger projects and get, you know, much bigger loans, you need to have a decent amount of assets on your balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So we started saying, okay, we got to figure out how these guys are in Boston, at least are buying or, you know, buying some land, building an apartment building and, you know, being able to hold on to it. And the numbers were just, it was tough for us to make that work, even though rents are pretty high yeah. in Boston. The NOI you'd get just kind of wouldn't support what you needed um, to make any money on the building. And the purchase price of the original parcel of land was just too high. Um, so we, we started figuring out, okay, well, a lot of these guys are doing that. They're building and selling it like a four cap or something, selling their completed asset after they stabilize it. And, you know, that's good enough at the, the debt to, you know, the buyer is not really relevant. They're just looking at the NOI. We were looking at the whole picture. Okay. Then we need to take out debt on this thing. And it'd probably be at like, you know, 75%, you know, something like that where it just wasn't really working. So we figured out kind of this office conversion opportunity could work for us where we, you know, redevelop it. We go in one of these satellite cities, we go in, um, we completely revitalize, bring it up to its highest and best mm -hmm. use, have all these residential units, maybe keep some retail on the first floor that's existing already, work around them so we can, it's a, like a covered land play. We can bring in money as we're doing it um, and then already have them set up. Um, 
and get to the point where the value of the building we've created is a lot higher than what we owe the bank for the construction and the acquisition loan, where we can refinance and hold on to it. Um, and so kind of what we're looking at that is as far as our investors go, um, we're bringing in people who are used to our condo projects where they're paid, they don't receive anything for like two years, you know, two, two mm -hmm. and a half years. So they're kind of used to that. Um, and, you know, we incentivize them with higher returns for something like that rather than regular distributions, um, which just isn't possible when you're building from scratch. You know, you really there's nothing to distribute for a few years. Um, so with the office play here, we're looking at, OK, it's going to be delayed gratification for the investors. Um, but either way, whether we decide to hold it and refinance, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, by refinancing or we decide to sell it at completion, we're going to pay back the investors a preferred rate of return at that point. Um, and then what we do from there just kind of depends on the market. So like I started this kind of diatribe, we're opportunistic guys. So that's, that's how we see it. We see going into this with two potential exit solutions. Mm -hmm. One of them, we would keep it either way. The investors are paid back at the refi or we sell it. They're all paid back. And then we make, you know, profit for our company that otherwise would have just remained as equity in the, in the building. Uh, one question on that, because you mentioned again, the red tape, how is that where have I found before in a lot of these cities where you have a increased demand for residential and, you know, the office to residential makes perfect sense, but I found some pushback before at le uh, levels of the city council and the government, because usually in a city, your biggest expenses are education and police. So obviously they have to, you know, they're adding in more rental units, more rental units, um, you know, the taxes for those units have to, you know, some pay for or subsidize um, the education for possibly children that are living in these places and stuff. Have you had pushback from like these city councils and governments about this conversion or do they welcome it because they know they need more residential uh, inventory? Yeah, so it definitely depends where you're building. Um, in Boston, they're lucky that they have people from all over clamoring to invest money and build in that city because every, you know, everyone understands the life sciences, the industry situation we we're speaking about earlier. So there's a lot of investment and the city can basically turn down most developers, be really stringent and still come away progressing and building. Whereas when you're looking at some of these satellite cities, um, like the ones we're talking about for the office conversion, you know, a lot of these cities are former, especially here in New England, a lot of them are former manufacturing hubs. Um, their population today is like equal to what it was in the late 1800s. So really they have the infrastructure and they have the desire to become a proper city again. And they've been doing a really good job over the past couple of decades, basically since Eric and I have been alive, you know, we talk to our parents and we say, oh yeah, we're investing in Lowell. That's the name of the city. And they might go like, Ooh, they might shudder and cringe and think, isn't that where, you know, all the, the drugs are or whatever. But actually you look at it now today, the crime rate is below the state average. So a lot of these cities, they've been actively for several decades now yeah. on a campaign to improve and repopulate and clean up their cities. And they've been doing a really good job. And there's also all sorts of, um, incentives from the state like they have programs um, where they'll award you additional you know basically a grant for your project um, if you invest in these what are called gateway cities there's also tax credits you can get for a lot of these historic mm -hmm. buildings 
So there's a lot of things incentivizing developers to go in. And one of them is a friendly political environment. You know, the when we look at projects like this, one of the first things we do is we call the city planner and the people on the zoning board. And we talk with a local zoning attorney that's come from good references from brokers and other people in the real estate industry. And, you know, what we heard for this project is come in, you know, the, the thing that they were worried about is we build too much affordable housing because they already have too much of that. You know, they want like nice high level rentals in their city. And I think that's an interesting point you made about how they, they'd obviously prefer homeowners for the taxes, but these people are still, you know, they're going to be living right in the heart of the city. They're going to be patronizing local businesses. So they're still going to be contributing, you know, pretty significantly Mm -hmm. to the economy. So I think the city's all, all for it. And uh, you know, having the wind at our back is nice when we're used to dealing with Boston. Yeah. The other thing too, though, is Anna is when you're building high class enough, right? You're selling a condo for over a million bucks. The chances are that their children are going to public school is probably not that high, right? You're saying, you said you're selling for $600 a square foot outside of Boston. So um, you put those numbers together for a small, you know, a medium sized condo, let's say um, that can get up into the seven figures pretty easily. Um, But very interesting on that. Uh, It's very true. Also um, for anybody, it's like, uh, listening is like developing, or if you're investing, uh, just what Nick was saying with having the downward trajectory of crime in any of your cities and looking back at that. And before you even get involved with any city, uh, speaking to the board, and that's even if you're buying a property that's already built that you're going to renovate or value add, just knowing how, making sure that the town, the city is on your side and not against you when you're trying to uh, buy a property and, uh, you know, execute some sort of business plan that you've developed with your partners. But, um, so one other thing, too, you guys have done that I haven't done before, and I'd like to learn more about it, is um, a lot of land entitlements. Can you explain what land entitlement is and how you utilize it within your business? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's probably, you know, our, our best skill set in terms of what we've done so far. Um, and I, I mean, I describe land entitlement pretty simply as, you know, taking a raw parcel or, you know, an underutilized parcel or just it, any property and getting proper approvals to build something uh, much more almost drastic there, much different um, that really takes it to its highest and best use. So Mm -hmm. for example, you find a two family home in a two family zone, meaning the zoning laws say you can only build two family structures on that parcel of land and probably the surrounding ones. And you go through a long process um, that involves many steps. And then you get uh, approved to build, you know, a 10 unit building there. So that that's kind of land entitlement in, in our case, especially. So that's a, almost an exact example of something we've done. So we'll find that, you know, that very first project we, we both spoke about mm-hmm. the two family to three family, that zone with the zoning laws in Boston allowed for three units we only had two, so we didn't have to go through this long entitlement process, um, to get, you know, uh, three unit per, a permit to build our three units. We just, we had the plans, we applied, there's a small, you know, back and forth. We got the permit mm-hmm. with something like what we typically do, what our business model does in a longer entitlement process is okay. You find your land, um, and you say, okay, 
there's, you know, this is kind of what we do. Um, and there's probably different approaches, but you find your piece of property, maybe it's currently a single family house and you say, okay, this is in uh, a three family zone. So I could right away, you know, as long as I met the other dimensional requirements of the zoning code, such as, you know, maximum height and a certain number of parking spaces and setback from the street and side yards and all that, as long as you met those, we could right away knock this down and build three units. Um, now there's some nuance there, you know, you, 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 the house might be deemed historical to see all different cities have different sort of, uh, metrics that they use to say, okay, this is a historical piece of property or not Boston. For example, if it's built before 1960, you have to go through a process to determine, uh, if it's going to be deemed historical and they have five or six, uh, categories that they could deem it as. And, and one of them is essentially, we just deem it historical because we feel like it. And that's usually <laughs> sort of what happens. Yeah. Um, and then there's an additional process. So this is just the beginning when you're deciding, I want to demolish the existing house um, or building, whatever it is. You then have to go through the, a few month process where you kind of work with the historic committee and decide, it's called the landmarks commission and decide if there's an alternative to demolition. And usually there isn't. It's, it's like you could build off the structure, but usually, you know, the initial foundations may be very old. It's, it almost never makes sense to do yeah. that. So they might say, okay, look, you know, we won't invoke a demolition delay on you or they might. And then if they do invoke this demolition delay, cause you couldn't find an alternative and, and they deemed it historical, you have to wait 90 days to demolish. So that might be mm -hmm. part of your entitlement process or it might not concurrent though, to that you're going to start applying, moving towards your building permit. And that process, if you're going to do 10 units, for example, on this fictional two-family lot I'm talking about, there's many meetings. You have to meet with neighbors. You have to get neighbors on your side, yeah. local civic groups, uh, local politicians. Uh, it's a very political process. Most people don't like you. Um, they think you're mm -hmm. coming in and ruining the neighborhood. Usually we're doing the opposite. We're finding a dilapidated, underutilized house or building or vacant building and, and bringing residents to the neighborhood who are going to pay taxes and because these are homeowners mm -hmm. um, in this example. Um, so you go through this long process and then eventually, you know, you, you kind of maybe you went in with the 12 unit building, you come out with the seven unit, you know, you kind of work to the neighbors and kind of met in the middle because they say, no, two family zone, you're building two units. And we say, no, we're going to try to get variances to build 12. So you then, you know, you, uh, throughout this process, you've brought in a zoning attorney um, to show you what variances you'll need. You brought in an architect, civil engineer, mechanical engineer to help all, you know, design your plans. And they're always in flux as you go through the neighborhood process. Um, so then once you're done with that whole process, which could take six months, it could take 24 months. It's, wow. it's really, you might, sometimes you're really hated by the neighborhood groups. You got to <laughs> keep going back. Um, so this is all still part of this overall entitlement process that we deal with. So then we get to the point where we say, okay, this, this is our best shot. We have, you know, 20 letters of support from neighbors. We hope there's not many letters of opposition. We don't really know. They've been sent into the mayor's office. We schedule a zoning hearing, go before the zoning board of appeals and say, okay, we want to build this 10 unit building on this piece of property here's, you know, our case, our legal case, these are the variances we're seeking, you know, in this case, it'd be number of units, number of dwelling units, and we need a variance since they only allow two, we might need a variance on number of parking spaces per unit, maybe they require one, but there's no way we could really fit 10 on that property. Um, 
maybe we went a little closer to the street than we're allowed to. So we need a variance on setback. Yeah. So you'd list all your variances, you'd make your case and then they would say, okay, you know, um, you know, they'll vote on it. It's a whole board. They'll agree. Okay. We'll grant you these variances. Good. You can, you know, you have, you can go build this thing. And that's just sort of uh, the start of the process. There's an appeal period after that where neighbors yeah. can appeal the decision. Um, you can get sued, you know, at, during that or at any point really. Um, and then once you know you have your zoning board, ZBA, Zoning Board of Appeals approved plans, then you start working towards your building permit. You have your architect draw up your full construction set. You submit that to the city along with all these other required documents. And, you know, yeah. it seems like dozens and dozens of things. <laughs> and then eventually you get your permit that says, you know, erect 10 units. And that's kind of the entire yeah. entitlement process for us in a nutshell. Well, uh, that's, you know, very in-depth. I imagine you have multiple of these projects going on at the same time since they're so uh, long-term. One question before we start wrapping up is with that property, let's say that that fictional uh, or example, that two-family, you have purchased that two-family. You don't have it under contract or anything like that. You've actually purchased it at this point, and then you start the whole process. Is that correct? You're not tying it up or anything like this. You're actually purchased it and then hoping that you can go you know, whatever it is, uh, a 10, 10 unit as we're talking here. Um, is that correct? Uh, could be. So we use a lot of different strategies. We're all about minimal risk. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there has to be some risk, but we try to minimize it as much as possible for both ourselves and our investors. So if we have a project where we're going to go through this process um, and we purchase it outright, we have to have a plan B where... Yeah. Okay. If we run into trouble, then the letter of the law, you can build two units. We can still make enough profit to pay our investors back mm -hmm. with their return and maybe, you know, a little bit of profit for us. So we need a disaster scenario where we're not losing money and no one's losing money. Otherwise, we won't go after the deal. But what we also do is we do what are called zoning contingencies. So we'll mm -hmm. write offers um, with a contingency that I'm not going to purchase your building today. I'm going to purchase it in a year or a year and a half, once we have approvals and for letting me wait that long, I'm going to pay you slightly above the market yeah. rate. So what would actually like a pure land entitlement deal we just did was we got a property under contract with a zone and contingency. We didn't purchase it um, outright. We got it fully approved. Then before purchasing it, we found another developer uh, because we have a lot of projects going on right now. We found another developer and we said, hey, we'll sell this building to you that we didn't even own yet, but we owned the approvals for um, because they were in our name. We'll sell this building to you. And that developer is now paying us, you know, uh, like mm -hmm. 700, 800,000 more than we're paying. Um, and that's the value that we generated just from getting those approvals. Yeah. And we have investors on that deal, you know, they're going to be getting their money back instead of, you know, two years, they're going to be getting their money back in a year because yeah. we're able to make so much profit just from entitling the land. We don't even need to do the construction. So it can be really valuable, especially in a place with that much red tape like Boston. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's just my question. If I was an investor, that'd be my question. What is your extra, what's your exit strategies? Because obviously this is just great going to the 10 unit, but obviously we're, there's a lot of, as you, as, uh, as Eric went through, there's tons of different variables. So um, what are common mistakes you see real estate investors and developers make? 
Um, I, I think one of the things we, we see a lot is, um, and, and we started seeing this kind of with the Southeast deals we were talking about mm-hmm. um, down there earlier with the cap rate compression is overpaying. Mm-hmm. Um, and now one thing, you know, we were just talking about yesterday is there's a, there's a price you can overpay or if the numbers still work, maybe it's like an off market deal or something you can overpay in a sense, because it, the numbers still work and you know, it's the only way that you'll be able to take this deal down. But when you start chasing these things mm-hmm. like cap, yeah. cap rate compression going on down there, we're, we were seeing deals where it was like, you couldn't even, you couldn't get a Fannie Freddie loan. You couldn't get any conventional financing. The only way it would work was if you had like a three-year bridge and your pro forma numbers were at, you know, those maybe produced three years out a good outcome where you're mm-hmm. almost taking a loss the first three years and you're going in at like a four and a quarter cap. Um, so we, we're, we're going to see how a lot of those play out because we saw some of those purchased in the last year. I'm curious in the next year or two, how those, those work out down there. But yeah. that I think a big thing that always sticks out to us is really overpaying and chasing, um, chasing those deals that aren't going to perform for three years when there's plenty of other deals out there that you can be more creative about. Right. Okay. Uh, what do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success? Um, it's a combination of flexibility and always learning new things. So as Eric mm-hmm. said, we're opportunistic. We start out in condo development. We have an affordable housing project right now. We're doing this office conversion, which involves like historic tax credits. We're constantly learning new things and looking at people who are a few steps ahead of us in one way or another and trying to see what they're doing right and always asking the experts you know speak with people don't try to google it talk to people who've been doing it for yeah. 15 years okay and how can our listeners learn more about uh you and your businesses uh you can go to winterspringcapital.com uh we're both on linkedin as well eric Dinacola and nick earls um we have an instagram account um winterspring capital and also nick wrote a book on development it's at winterspringcapital.com slash development dash book um it goes through our entire process kind of shows you if it's something you wanted to start doing on your own and figure out it really details everything for you um including that entire entitlement process i went through in much greater detail okay awesome great Uh, i will put those links into the show notes so i want to thank both you guys for coming on today and uh looking forward to connecting with you guys in the near future Thanks, Charles. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Charles. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. 
Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.